Dear friends, my name is John Bergen, and you're listening to The Word is Resistance. In this podcast, we ask, what do our sacred stories have to teach us as white folks about our role in resistance and in showing up for liberation? The music you heard is a live recording of a song gifted to the freedom movement by Dr. Vincent Harding, We Are Building Up a New World. The group you hear singing is No Enemies, a multiracial group of activists and musicians in Denver, Colorado, who come together for a movement choir practice to bring singing back into direct actions and other movement spaces. This particular choir practice is from December 2014, being led by Minister Daryl J. Walker, and we are deeply grateful to the Freeney Harding family for letting us use the song for this podcast. This podcast is a project of Surge Faith and Surge Action. Surge, or Showing Up for Racial Justice, organizes white people to take bold action against white supremacy. This podcast aims to resource us in that work, which means it is for everyone but geared towards white people working to build our resistance muscles. We welcome your feedback and especially appreciate feedback from and accountability to listeners of color. When you have come into the land, the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance to possess, and you possess it and settle in it. Well, that's as far as I got in the lectionary reading for this Sunday. I realize this may not be super helpful for anyone preparing to preach, but we've got to take a minute to talk about this colonization thing happening here in chapter 26, verse 1 of Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy, the Israelite people stand on the edge of the land of Canaan, ready to take by conquest the promised land, the land of their ancestor Abraham. In the book, Moses gives three speeches before he transfers power to Joshua and then dies. This passage comes near the end of the second speech, which contains the laws governing the community's worship, and is often considered the heart of the book. And in this passage... If you get past verse 1, Moses tells the people that, after the conquest, they should take the first fruits of what is grown there to the priest and offer this prayer in the form of a story. A wandering Aramean was my ancestor. They went down into Egypt and lived there as an alien, few in number, and there they became a great nation, mighty and populous. When the Egyptians treated us harshly and afflicted us by imposing hard labor on us, we cried to the Lord, the God of our ancestors. The Lord heard our voice and saw our affliction, our toil, and our oppression. The Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, with a terrifying display of power, and with signs and wonders. And the Lord brought us into this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. So now I bring the first of the fruit of the ground that you, O Lord, have given me. And then the Israelite people are instructed to celebrate their bounty together with the Levites and the aliens who reside among you, end quote. But this book was not written on the eve of conquest. This is not a narrative that stands innocently on one side of the Jordan River, ignoring the bloodbath and genocide of Joshua's conquest of the Canaanites. The Hebrew Bible as a canon bear with me for some Bible 101 here, was written, rewritten, prayed over, fought over, and compiled over the course of centuries. 
Most scholars believe that at least the core of Deuteronomy was written in the kingdom of Judah, centered in the capital of Jerusalem during religious reforms in the 7th century. That's the 600 BC. That's many centuries after the story of Deuteronomy is supposed to have taken place. Judah and their neighbors, the kingdom of Israel, had been imperial vassals of the Assyrian Empire up until Israel got rebellious and was destroyed back in 722 BC. So most of their folks were deported, but a few escaped south to Judah. And as the Assyrian Empire became weaker, a rebellious independence movement, maybe fueled by survivors of the Israelite resistance, gained strength in Judah. This movement needed a theology that replaced the covenant between Assyria and Judah with one between God and God's people centered in Jerusalem. This is when much of the theology at the heart of Deuteronomy was compiled. Think this is complicated? Just hang on for one more minute. A little while later, 576 BC, Jerusalem's rebelliousness got them in trouble with a new set of imperial overlords, the Babylonians. The city and the temple were destroyed. The elites who weren't killed were deported to Babylon. But the Babylonian Empire was also not long for this world, and the incoming Persian Empire was more inclined to let colonized people self-govern as long as they contributed troops and taxes. And so, 70 years after they left, the remaining Israelite elites found themselves headed back to Jerusalem, backed by Persian military and financial power, where they ran into the poor and working people who had never left, who had intermarried with non-Israelites and mixed traditions. So what are these elites to do? They have separated from a people they want to claim as theirs, separated from a land that they have claimed connection to for 70 years, disconnected by wealth and privilege. They are searching for a story that connects them to this land, this people, this place. When you have come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance to possess, and you possess it and settle in it, there is a reason why so many Christian settlers of Turtle Island turned to this and other passages, why my ancestors read themselves into the story of the conquest of Canaan. Violently disconnected from the land on which they were settling, they took on the mantle of the Israelites, the chosen people called to a chosen land. The Hebrew Bible is so many things, but one thing it is, politically, is an argument between parts of the Israelite community about how to relate to the forces of imperialism. Some advocate resistance to the consolidation and oppression that occurs and return to the traditions of the land. Others advocate purity or separation as a strategy of protection. Others advocate for strategic cooperation. And others promote a full-throated theology of imperialism. Okay, history lesson over, because this isn't really ancient history, is it? Over the Gulf of 2,500 years, we can see our own people in these battles over ideology, theology, strategy, and survival. Palestinian liberation theologian Mitri Rahab delineates five strategies for dealing with empire that Jewish Palestinians deployed around the time of Jesus and links them with contemporary movements. The first strategy is open violent confrontation, fighting back. This is pretty rare historically, but in Jesus' time it was represented by the Zealots, who would wage a bloody and ultimately unsuccessful rebellion in Jerusalem a few decades after Jesus' death. It's worth remembering that Jesus had at least one Zealot, Simon, among the apostles. The second is a strategy of closely observing the law, the belief that if we are good enough, God will save us. In this strategy, the fight is with your own people, not with empire. This is the strategy of the Pharisees, and Rahab says it's also one of Hamas's strategies. 
The third strategy is accommodation, allowing your religious authority to be confirmed by the occupying power. This is the strategy of the Sadducees in Jesus' time. The fourth strategy is out-and-out -out collaboration with occupation, and the final strategy Rahab names is retrieval, to retreat and build an alternative. This, the Essenes in Jesus' time retreated. Alternative communities and back-to-land efforts hold this strategy in our time. Empire and its child-racialized capitalism are endlessly creative in how they co-opt and infiltrate resistance movements. The beast is never full. Its mouth is always open. Its tentacles always at work. Jesus knows this, and there's a good reason why this week's gospel story of Jesus tempted in the wilderness, Luke 4, was passed down to the early Christian community. In Luke 4, Jesus is led by the Holy Spirit out into the desert to prepare himself for the work he has been called to do. Here he is doing Martin Luther King Jr.'s third step in the six steps for nonviolent social change, personal commitment. He was doing the inner examination needed to engage in struggle, and in this inner examination, in this wilderness quest, he meets the devil, who offers him three deals. The first is, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become a loaf of bread. Pretty simple. You're hungry. You know lots of hungry people. You, Jesus, son of God, could end world hunger tomorrow through your charity. And Jesus refuses. One does not live by bread alone. Ask anyone who has lived relying on the charity of food banks or homeless ministries. Cheap carbs offered by self-satisfied volunteers are a far cry from human liberation. The second deal is even less subtle. Then the devil led him up and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And the devil said to him, To you I will give their glory and all this authority, for it has been given over to me, and I give it to anyone I please. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. The gospel writer here probably means the Roman world when they say the world. These terms were often used interchangeably. So all the kingdoms of the world means everything controlled by the Romans. The gospel really couldn't be clearer here. Imperial power is satanic power. To worship empire and its military might is devil worship. The devil's third deal is a little more complicated. Then the devil took him to Jerusalem and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to protect you, and on their hands they will bear you up so you will not dash your foot against a stone. In refusing this deal, Jesus is rejecting the strategy of accommodation, allowing his religious authority to be confirmed by the occupying satanic power. He is refusing to become a charismatic figure secretly allied with the powers of empire. In this story, the writer of Luke lays out the three pillars of support that prop up the Roman Empire. Economic collaboration, bread, political collaboration, all the kingdoms of the world, and religious collaboration. On their hands they will bear you up. And then Jesus spends the rest of his ministry trying to undermine these pillars. He feeds thousands free bread and fish. He welcomes occupying military officers who support his movement, check Luke 7, and he directly challenges religious leaders and calls on them to change their ways and abandon their collaboration and accommodation. In this, Jesus stands in the long, long Jewish tradition of resistance to occupation and empire. He draws deeply on the wisdom of his people and returns again and again to the anti-imperial traditions of his sacred text. And he invites us to do the same.
Friends, it is clear that in the next couple of years there will be increasing polarization in politics around U.S. support for the occupation of Palestine. It is clear that politicians are willing to go after folks who critique U.S. foreign policy in relation to Israel with the charges of anti-Semitism, all while ignoring or even supporting the violent anti-Semitism of the KKK, the alt-right, and the Christian right. It is also clear that we have continued work to do within our movements to uncover and unpack the anti-Semitism that hurts our Jewish comrades. Last week, Representative Ilhan Omar, an African immigrant, a former refugee from Somalia who wears her hijab in the halls of Congress, a Muslim woman whose masjid in Minnesota was bombed by white terrorists, answered a question about anti-Semitism. She said, for me, I want to talk about the political influence in this country that says it is okay for me to push our allegiance to a foreign country. I want to ask, why is it okay for me to talk about the influence of the NRA, of fossil fuel industries, or big pharma, and not talk about a powerful lobby that is influencing policy? In response, a wave of condemnations from Republicans and Democrats and a possible vote on a resolution condemning Representative Omar especially from the right, which is actively using charges of anti-Semitism to try and erode Jewish support for progressive political action. Jewish people must be able to live in safety anywhere and everywhere. Whether in Palestine, in France, or in the United States, Jewish people have the right to feel safe from anti-Semitic violence. We need to interrogate any and all the ways that our language and thought might perpetuate a myth of some, quote, Jewish conspiracy that long-standing anti-Semitic trope that is used to justify violence against Jewish people today. We also must critique U.S. foreign policy, especially policies that replicate the same violence that built our country. I will never forget standing at the highway blockade in Standing Rock on November 2016 as tear gas and rubber bullets whizzed by me as state forces sprayed freezing water and water protectors and mentally returning to my time in Palestine. In that moment, I realized that the violence perpetuated by the state of Israel is just a copy of U.S. violence. Israel doesn't do anything the white settlers in the United States haven't done, don't continue to do. The U.S. backing of Israeli settler colonialism is an extension of the Christian settler project here on Turtle Island. There's a lot that can be said about right-wing support for the state of Israel. There's a lot that can be said about challenging anti-Semitism on the left. If you missed it, go back and listen to Reverend Anne's Ash Wednesday podcast on this very topic. Everything I've said here is building on her episode from earlier this week, and I want to focus now, though, on one particular pillar of imperialism and anti-Semitism. Last week, a rabbi said to me, you know, I'm tired of Christians asking me, how do I talk with my Jewish friends about Palestine? Don't y'all have Christian friends to talk to? It's not a good analysis of power to focus entirely on making Jews responsible for U.S. support for the state of Israel. There are 5 million Jews in the United States total. There are 4 million members of Christians united for Israel, and that's just one group. Jews don't have that much power compared to conservative Christians. You're worried about talking to your Jewish friends? Go talk to your Christian friends. That's the pillar that needs to fall. The Reb is right. Christians are caught up in the religion of empire bought into the devil worship of supporting settler colonialism here and abroad. If even a, an appreciable percentage of Christians took action against U.S. support for settler colonialism here and abroad, the system would shake to its core. So in this season of shedding, releasing, and taking on, we must ask, where do Christians need some prophetic truth-telling? Where do 
Christians United for Israel, KUFI, and other groups need to be disrupted. KUFI has a conference this summer in D.C. in July, just saying, and there are in our faith spaces and communities so many opportunities to disrupt latent anti-Semitism and the religion of empire. And we must refuse to be split by the rights wedges. We've got to call each other into a deeper vision of justice and connection and support each other in refusing the devil's deal. We've got to read ourselves out of the conquest and ally ourselves with the Canaanites and all those crushed by empire. Today's call to action builds on Reverend Ann's call to return to wholeness by examining anti-Semitism in our theologies. Let's continue this self-examination and match it by talking with our relatives, neighbors, and friends about challenging both anti-Semitism and the occupation of Palestine. If you've read or heard something this week that changed how you might think about these issues, just share what you've learned with someone who you think might not agree with you. It doesn't have to be a coherent dissertation on the issue. In fact, it probably shouldn't. Try out a conversation and see what you learn about what works and doesn't. Learn from it. Continue your learning and return to wholeness. I've included the number of articles and resources related to this week's podcast in the transcript, including some of the links that Reverend Ann referenced earlier this week. Thank you for joining me today. As always, let us know how it goes by commenting on our Facebook page or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast app you're using. You can find out more about Surge at showingupforracialjustice.org, and our podcast lives at SoundCloud. Search for The Word is Resistance. You can interact with us there if you have questions or need help with action ideas. Transcripts are available on our website, which include any references, credits, that sort of stuff. Thanks to our sound editor, Max Pearl, for putting this together. Seriously, thank you. Blessings to all of you as you continue in the work of being transformed, of transforming the movement, and transforming the world. Go in peace. Yeah.